Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah, release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. To be a great seducer, you have to be good with people, right? It's a skill, knowing how to be comfortable with people, how to really listen to them, how to kind of reflect their ideas, to mirror them in some way. These are high-level social skills. When you spend 95% of your time here on your phone, on your computer, you're losing those skills. They're being degraded. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mark Gross Podcast. Today, I am joined by Robert Greene, author. I'm so excited. Well, my pleasure to be here, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, man, as someone who has consumed your work, I think I can self-title myself as being an absolute nerd of human behavior, and you know whether that be our physical ways of communicating or our verbal or all the things, your work obviously informs that in so many ways. I'm curious... You know, when I look at the book order, you know, and how you started your journey, what made you become a writer and the motivation of the first book as well? Well, I've been writing my whole life. Uh, since I was a kid, I kind of knew that that was my calling in life. I had a love of words, a love of languages, even foreign language, just the sound of words, et cetera, and writing and books and all. And it's a story I've told before. I've, I've tried many different jobs in my life. I've had maybe 60, 70 different jobs, a lot of them directly related to writing. I tried journalism out of college thinking, I want to write, but I have to make a living. You know, my parents aren't going to support me. So journalism, maybe. And I did that. I lived in New York. I lived, did that for about four years or so. And it, it wasn't a good fit for me for various reasons. I mean, I thought it taught me a lot. But it wasn't like, this isn't going to be my career, my future. So I left that. And then I wandered around Europe for many years trying to write novels because I thought, oh, I'm going to be a novelist, which is really my 
kind of my ideal, my dream as a kid. And that didn't work out for various reasons. I didn't really have the discipline. I didn't have the life experience to write something really meaningful. And so then I wandered back to Los Angeles, where I'm from. My father wasn't well, so I came back here. And my sister kind of connected me to somebody in Hollywood. I thought maybe I'll be a screenwriter. You know, and I was working for a director, and his wife is a screenwriter. And I tried my hand in screenwriting, and that wasn't a really good fit for various reasons. A, I don't think I was quite good enough for it. But B, it wasn't, it's just not my spirit, you know? I like to control things. I like to have my vision. And when you work in Hollywood, like 80 different people get involved. Everything is changed <laughs> and messed with. So much politicking and bullshit. And I don't have much tolerance for that kind of thing, as you probably know, guess from my books. Yeah. So, you know, flash forward to 1995, I'm kind of a depressed young man going into my late 30s, pushing towards 40, haven't found what I know I can do something important in life, but I haven't found it. So I'm getting kind of depressed. I've got this small one bedroom apartment in Santa Monica. It's very beautiful near the beach, but kind of a small dinky little apartment. And the future doesn't look great. My parents are getting a little worried about me. And then I go to Italy. A college friend of mine invited me. There was a new media school being opened. He was involved and he's Dutch. And he said, well, maybe Robert, you can help. We're going to write a book to launch this school. Maybe you could help us. So sure, Italy, why not? Of course, I'll take anything. Yeah. And so I go there and then I meet a man named Joost Elfers, who is Dutch, who's a friend of my friend. He was there to produce this book because he's a book packager, a book producer, a designer and a book producer. And this school was just ridiculous. It was just full of Italian Machiavellian politics. <laughs> we just sat around eating good food, having coffee and wine. Nothing got done. Nobody really cared. It was just, it was just <laughs> insane. I don't remember. It was fun, but nothing got created or accomplished. So one day, Yost, his name is Yost, and I were walking in Venice, Italy, really beautiful near the Piazza San Marco on the Quays of Venice. Can't imagine a more beautiful scene. And he asks me if I had any ideas for a book. And so all of my previous frustrations, my resentments, my bitterness, my experience in the work world, all the different jobs I've had, it just came up out of nowhere. I can't even really explain. It's almost like a demon possessed me. And I pitched this idea. I pitched several ideas, but this is the one that he loved. He pitched this idea about power. And I said, you know, I read a lot of history, Yost. I read a lot of things about Renaissance Italy, the court of Louis XIV, which is kind of a favorite subject of mine. And I said, in these environments, it's all politicking. It's all ego. It's who you know. It's how you play these little delicate games. And I go, what we're experiencing at this school in Italy, it's the same thing. Hollywood, it's the same thing. People don't kill you. They don't have daggers. They don't stab you in the back, literally, as they may have done in Renaissance Italy. But they they <laughs> talk dirty about you. They fire you. They do all kinds of mean games. Nothing has changed. It's a timeless game. And I gave them stories of history. The first story that, that introduces the 48 Laws of Power about the man who throws this magnificent party to honor Louis XIV. And in the process, everyone admires the man who threw the party and not the king. And the next day, he's thrown into prison for the rest of his life. He outshone the master. I tell you, this is how I would illustrate these ideas. He got so excited because he could, he was a very brilliant man. He could see the book right there. He said, Robert, I'll pay you to write the book while you write the book and then we'll sell it. So I come home to Los Angeles 
And I go, this is my one chance. This is my ticket out of despair, out of frustration, out of my dingy one-bedroom apartment, out of all my frustration. I worked so hard. I gave everything I got into this book. You know, I researched like a fiend. I just worked night and day because I was just so motivated. In my books, I talk about death ground. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I was on death ground then. And, you know, kind of the rest is history. But I tell people, if he had come to me 10 years earlier, I couldn't have written the book. I was too young. I didn't have the experience. I hadn't reached this point of desperation yet. So everything kind of worked out in a way that when you look back, it almost seems like it was destiny. Although I don't know if that concept has any reality or not. But that's sort of my long-winded answer to your question. When you started to do the breakdown of power, because I know that book has had so much, I mean, it's been shared by so many people who are successful, you know, as being such a core book that has helped maybe develop their way of seeing the world. One thing that I really found fascinating when I researched more into it was how much resistance there was to the book. Like like how people are like, wow, this is exploitive or this is manipulative. Or I'd love to hear you more speak to that in that, there seems to be like a fear of power or like understanding power, even though these things are occurring all the time. You know, it's you give these examples of stories of where there's clear ways that we can actually develop and hone and be powerful, which we seem to be somewhat afraid of. And I'm curious your thoughts on the resistance to your book and also maybe why we fear it. I know when I started to write the book, I'm not a fan necessarily. I don't have a great history of self-help books I mean, I read a few things before I wrote this, but it wasn't like a genre that interested me because my reality in the work world was very Machiavellian. It was kind of what I write about, right? People are after power. They'd be manipulative. They don't show it. They wear a mask. And notebooks out there talked about it. So as you say, it's like our dirty little secret. This is how people operate in the real world, in business, in entertainment, in politics, in all avenues, even in sports. But nobody wants to write about it. They want to write these stupid, sweet, sentimental, <laughs> wonderful books, self-help books, that are all motivation, et cetera, et cetera. It's just crap to me. This isn't reality. This isn't what I went through. It's not what most people go through. You try getting a job in Hollywood or the music industry, and you're gobsmacked with all of these manipulative, egotistical people. Who writes about this? Okay. So yes, there is a lot of resistance. So I wrote the book. Oddly enough, I thought I was going to get a lot more kind of vitriolic response than I actually did. Because the book is a bit wicked. And it's wicked on purpose, right? It's kind of a strategy on my part to kind of get people's attention and get them to be excited about my ideas. I was expecting a lot more opposition to it. Yes, there were people who still to this day who think it's satanic, who think that I'm the writer, me is a psychopath, et cetera, et cetera. I still get that kind of comments. But I was expecting a lot worse. And really what happened was people who need needed the book found their way to it, right? Yeah. Really strange and interesting phenomena. You know, they hear about it because it's got this kind of allure to it. They find their way to it and they get excited about it and they read it and it's spread by word of mouth. The real resistance to the book came from mainstream media, which never wanted to treat this as a serious book. I had no reviews, really. Nobody in the New York Times or any of the big publications, they essentially ignore it. They still ignore me to this day. It's not seen as a serious subject 
for people. If you're going to write about power, you have to be Henry Kissinger, or you have to be a professor at Harvard with five degrees, and you're writing about all these esoteric theories that have no relation to what I went through or you go through in any office, right? That's the schizophrenia of America. All of these brilliant academics writing books upon books that have nothing to do with the reality, the power dynamics, the politicking in our day-to-day lives. That was more of the resistance that I came up I think people generally understand, particularly if you're kind of downtrodden, if you haven't had much power, you understand that this is the game that's being played out there and the book is seen as realistic, not ugly or exploitative. That's really fascinating because I think like, I wonder if the pathology to that is if you read, you know, if they elevate the message of a book like the 48 Laws of Power, that people will then see how power is being used in these structures too, you know, that kind of like outing themselves if they promote something like that. So journalists by profession are very manipulative. And I don't mean that in a negative way, right? But when I knew that because I was a journalist, when you want to write a story, you don't tell the subject of the story exactly what you're going to write about, right? You're not telling them, I'm going to write a piece that's going to cut you down to pieces, right? I'm not going to write a, a hit job. But that's power. That's manipulation. So if you're yeah. a journalist, you know it. If you're real, if you're honest with yourself, that the game involves manipulating. You have your own story. You have your own preconceptions, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I remember early on, I was on the O'Reilly Factor. I don't know many people who who still remember that show. He was on Fox News. He was an incredibly popular interviewer. He had his own show called The O'Reilly Factor up until just a few years ago. And the show was very early on. This is 1998. So you really imagine how long ago that was. And he had me on the show twice. And the first thing he says is, Robert, your book is great, but I hate it. I hate people who are like that, et cetera, et cetera. I hate people who are manipulative, et cetera. He then had me on a second time. But he was very nice to me the first and the second time. He just ripped me to pieces. He was just like taking things out of context, making it seem that I was in favor of, you know, mass murder, of war, of slaughter, of bloodshed, et cetera. It was just crap. And he's saying he doesn't like manipulation. He finds the book ugly, but he was a master manipulator. So people generally, and I write about this in The Laws of Human Nature, the main Number one law of human nature is people don't want to be honest about themselves. They don't want to admit that they have these tendencies that I write about in the book. So that to me makes because you also write about the shadow. And I think about that as being like that shadow side of even, you know, being convinced of something is the belief that you'll never be convinced of it. You know, this idea that you're not susceptible to darkness, you're not susceptible, which I don't know. Do do you think that's what makes people susceptible to darkness? Well, you know, we all have that dark side to us, right? And so when I was writing the Human Nature book, I'm kind of becoming aware of my own dark side as I'm writing these qualities in myself. I'm going, Robert, you're actually quite narcissistic. You can actually be a very aggressive person. You're very competitive. You can even be passive aggressive, right? But people don't want to confront these things. And if you don't confront them, what ends up happening? You then can do whatever you want in life. You're not aware that you're being aggressive. You're not aware that you're acting out of envy. You're not aware that you're manipulating. And you justify it to yourself. You go, well, I'm doing this because that other person is wrong. They're evil. They're bad. They don't like me. They've hurt me, et cetera, et cetera. 
So when you're not aware of your darker impulses, which we all have, even Mahatma Gandhi had a dark side. Even Mother Teresa has a dark side. I'm sorry, but it's human nature. If you don't come to terms with it, if you don't look at it, then you give yourself license to do all kinds of behavior that's letting this shadow side out without acknowledging it. And when you look on the internet and you look on social media, you see this entire landscape of people acting out all of their trollish, aggressive behavior, right? They're able to say mean things. They're able to be very manipulative. They're able to quote things out of context. I wrote an essay a while ago about all of the language games, logic games that people have in arguments that are incredibly deceptive and slippery. It was based on a brilliant essay by the great German philosopher Schopenhauer. And there's like 29, he lists 29 slippery, evasive, deceptive arguments. It's a brilliant book. I then wrote about that and, and I kind of updated it. Every single one of those forms of deceptive, slippery arguments are used in social media. And so you have this, because you're basically anonymous, you have license to bring out your shadows, to be as mean as you want to be. So if you don't acknowledge it, then you're going to be acting out in ways that are very antisocial, that are very dangerous, and they're going to give you a lot of grief in life and you won't be aware of it. The reason I was pulled to the book, The 48 Laws of Power, was when I was a sales rep and I had a manager he was also a mentor. He was amazing. And I remember he said, like, you need to learn this book because this is how it works. So, you know, and at the time, I was really thinking about how to manipulate human behavior. I was in sales, right? You know, which is, sure, of course. Which is behavior manipulation. Let's, sure. let's call it what it is. Exactly. And yeah, and then when I had a relational breakdown, then I <laughs> picked up the art of seduction. Oh, uh. And I was enamored by the art of seduction. I mean, it was very much, it obviously speaks a lot to like the work I started to do much later. But at the time, I wanted to learn the art of seduction again for influence. And I was blown away by a lot of stuff in that book. And I still remember exactly where I was when I started reading it. I was on the beach and I just, <laughs> because I was like, oh, this is really speaking how to influence people. But, and so I'm curious, like your transition going from writing the 48 Laws of Power to writing the Art of Seduction, like, is there a coincidence? Because you talk about the 48 Laws of Power being your experience, you know, in the workplace and in life. And what was the Art of Seduction like? How did that get brought up and into the fold? Well, it has several uh, sources for it. Number one, the idea behind the 48 Laws of Power is that in an environment where everyone's supposed to be so fair, democratic, and wonderful, and liberal, etc., you have to disguise your power moves. That's what the 48 Laws of Power is about. You can't appear to be manipulating, or people will hate you, they'll see through you. So you have to be indirect. You have to be soft. You have to be delicate. You have to do what Napoleon Bonaparte said and put your iron fist inside a velvet glove. So people just feel the velvet, but they don't realize there's a piece of iron in it that's going to belt you, right? You have to be indirect. You have to be soft. Soft power is the future, right? We don't live in an environment where people can be overtly brutal. So seduction was already a mm. sub-theme in the 48 Laws of Power, and I wrote yeah. some stories about some famous seducers, one of which was the courtesan Ninon de L'Enclos, who's in the 48 Laws of Power. So it was already a sub-theme. But then, I must admit, when I was in my 20s, living first in Paris, I was very much interested in, in seduction, you know, just as a way of meeting women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I met a few people who were really brilliant at the game, 
I kind of observed them. I'm not saying that I am a master player, but I went through a period where I was very much a rake in my 20s, right? And so I've always been excited by the psychology of it. And not in the ugly aspect of people kind of overtly taking advantage of someone who's weaker, etc. I like the game aspect of it, where it goes back and forth, where people are kind of, you're getting someone to open up to you, they open up to you, and then you open up to them. And this kind of insane, brilliant, beautiful piece of psychology is an operation. Because as a salesman, you know very well, or having been a salesman, sorry, you know very well that the moment you meet someone, they're resistant, they're closed. They don't want to buy your product. They don't want to listen to you. You're an annoyance. Get out of here. You're bothering me. They're resistant. They're closed. And seduction is this brilliant game of getting under people's skin, infiltrating their defenses, and getting them to lower that. And so I started to write The Art of Seduction because I'm fascinated by it. There are no books on it. Whereas power, there are like millions of books on power that you could go through. There's no books on seduction. Very few. And if they are, they only focus on sexual seduction. And I wanted to make the point that seduction is a human phenomenon. It transcends the sexual realm. It's about influence. It's about the social seduction. It's about political seduction. It's about marketing seductions. It's a phenomenon of every interaction where you're trying to influence people. You're trying to influence your children, your wife, your boss, whomever. Nobody's writing about it. So in the one hand, that's bad because there's no material out there for me to go on. <laughs> on the other hand, I have this vast, empty field in front of me. And so it was probably the most fun book to write because it's seduction. You can't not have a good time writing. Yeah. But I got so excited by like, I like doing things that are a little bit weird and off base. Like John F. Kennedy, well, we know he seduced women. He's a womanizer. But I wanted to go and illustrate his seduction of the American people in 1960. And it was one of the most brilliant political seductions ever. Material like that just excited the hell out of me. Picking things from all over, different aspects, covering people that had nothing to do with the seducing a man or a woman, but just the process of that psychology. And so that's sort of where the book came from. I think that's such an, for me, I get excited thinking about that subject too, because not so much like for me, the origin of the desire was to mitigate being hurt, like to feel more approval, Uh to get, you know, to ensure my success to, at the time I was sort of running from my pain by seeking shorter term relationships, but also really enjoying the, you know, the quote unquote game, like this dance that occurs. And it's this beautiful dance. And when I was in college, I remember sitting at this party, I was talking to this girl and my friend Sam pulled out his guitar and started singing. And she just got up and went over to Sam. And I remember thinking to myself, like, he hasn't even spoken. Like he was a handsome guy and he was, you know, a, a musician. That's you know, There you go. Already. <laughs> right. He's got I was like, I get it. I'd go talk to Sam too. But when we look at that, you know, I, what I hear a lot from people is I don't want to play games. Like there's this resistance to learning this art, but it transcends romantic relationships, you know, as you're saying. So can someone afford not to learn it? That's the question. Like you faced that resistance a lot when it came out. And also what goes into being a good seducer? 
I'm fine with people who don't want to read my books, who don't find it interesting, who just want to be themselves and be in a relationship and not have to play these games. That's fine. I'm not an authoritarian or a fascist. Everybody has to read my book and I'm not defensive about it. If you don't like it, I understand. It's not going to hurt me. I'm not going to take it personally. I know there's some wicked things in that book and I don't deny it. On the other hand, though, I like to point out to people who say that I don't like to play games. I say, when you first meet a woman, because let's say we'll do it from the man's point of view, but it can easily be reversed. You meet a woman and you want to have a relationship with her. You can't just go over and grab her and do something, right? You have to kind of try and find a way to, you know, to get involved. Okay. And then let's say you somehow manage to get that first date. She says, fine. All right. I say, do you just uh, then show up wearing your shorts and not having shaved and just take her to a, a place where you can get pizza and beer? No. You try and look dress well, usually, hopefully, if you're thinking of if you're a good seducer, if you're a good boyfriend or lover or whatever, you put some effort into it. You dress nicely. You take them to a place that you think is different, is interesting. You be generous. You buy them an, a nice meal, et cetera, et cetera. You, you know, you surround yourself with things that are positive. You not you say, oh, I don't play games, but you're playing a goddamn game right there. You're not being mm-hmm. exactly who you are. You're not belching in front of them. You're not just doing all the things you normally would do in the privacy of your house. You're controlling your words. You're not saying every idea that comes to you. You don't want to offend them. Well, I'm sorry. At that point, be careful with what you do. You are playing a game. Just be honest with yourself, right? And stop being dishonest and stop trying to act like you're a saint. If you were just mm. being yourself, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't do anything. And then one of the main things that particularly women complain about in a relationship is the man doesn't put any effort into it. He doesn't show that he really cares. And if you really are interested in someone, if you really love them, or if you want to have a relationship, however long or short it is, the fact that you try, that you put effort, that you bring some theater, some drama into it, that you dress nicely, that you take them to nice places, that you give them certain gifts, etc., that is seductive. That is playing the game. Mm-hmm. And it's like a mating ritual among animals, you know? Animals don't just immediately pair off, at least some of them don't. They play these sort of very elaborate mating rituals in which the male, for instance, shows that he's a worthy mate if he's a bird because he can sing really well, or he's got beautiful plumage like a peacock, etc. It's in the animal world. We're animals. We do it a little differently. We don't wear beautiful, we don't have feathers, and we don't sing, although your your friend sang on this guitar. You know, we have other ways of doing it. We're more psychological, but it's nature. I'm sorry, it's not manipulative. Okay, that's what I say to people. What makes a good seducer is someone, a couple of things. Number one, you're very outer directed. So seduction is a language. It's a language that's not with words. That's what I say in the book. You have to learn this language. It's a language of gesture. It's a language of body, of nonverbal communication through the body. It's a language of behavior, etc. Okay? And people can read your body language. They can understand. They can sniff who you are. And if you're insecure, it's the number one turnoff. It's the number one anti-seductive trait, insecurity. If you've ever been in front of an insecure person, you know that they tend to infect you with insecurity yourself. They make you nervous. Whereas if you're with somebody who's confident, 
it can be maybe a little bit intimidating, but sometimes they usually sort of make you feel a little more confident, a little more open sometimes. So the number one most important trait of seducer is not being absorbed with yourself and thinking of you, who you are, and what you need to do and what your needs are and what you have to say, but being outer directed. And it, this is the game part that should be so exciting to you. That other person sitting across from you in a restaurant or a bar or wherever it is, hopefully not on Tinder because it's better to be out in the real world. That person sitting out there, they have their whole world. They have this old, totally different world, different childhood, different culture, different background, different experiences. They may be of a different gender, so they have a whole different way of thinking, et cetera, et cetera. How exciting for you to get inside their world and penetrate it and think about it. So a great seducer is genuinely interested in their psychology. One of the chapters in The Art of Seduction, it's very important, it's called Enter Their Spirit. You're entering their world, their spirit, and kind of seeing what it might look, the world looks like through their eyes. You master that technique, you will be a great, great seducer. So, you know, so for instance, an insecure person, if they're sitting in this relation, in this scenario in a restaurant or whatever, they're thinking of, what am I going to say next? Are they actually liking who I am? Are they attuned to me? It's all about you, 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 you. You want to flip it around. You want to get rid of all that ego and that, that nervousness and be attentive to the other person. And that's the main trait of any great seducer. You know, and it's, and it's kind of a the most pleasant part of it is exploring that other person and figuring out who they are. So that, for instance, when you give a gift, which is a very seductive gesture, it's not a, the gift is part of that language I mentioned. It's nonverbal communication. It says a lot about who you are. And people often are really bad at giving gifts. They're just a very generic, they put no thought into it. They just give something that's expensive or that they saw in a movie or that's, that's some product out there. If you know, if you're into their spirit, if you think about them, you think about, you listen to what they say, you hear about what they really are about, and you give them a gift. Yeah, so you give something that reveals that you've been listening to them, right? That you heard something they said five days ago, a month ago, and then your gift reflects that. And that has total seductive mm -hmm. power. It's going to bring those defenses down. Whereas if you just give chocolate or roses or expensive rings, <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll be, Sorry. you're okay. But it doesn't have the effect of that personalized attention. So that's the main trait of a great seducer. Yeah, there's definitely not a hot, a lot of hotness to uh, giving the same gift that you know everyone else gives or is in like the top Valentine's Day. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I ever got a girlfriend for a month anniversary was a rose, which I do, in hindsight, recognize how <laughs> unoriginal that actually well, was. You know, if you're going to give flowers, maybe if you think, well, I'm going to give her flowers on Valentine's Day, first one of kind of a couple of weeks before, sort of find out what her favorite colors are. You know, if she does have any preference for flowers or anything like that, and then you give something of that color or that particular flower. Well, that's much better than, you know, if yellow is their favorite color, then just daffodils, which are the cheapest flowers around, will be a lot more meaningful than a one red rose. I could have used you back then. That would have been, uh, you, you hadn't written it yet. You hadn't written it yet. 
As you know, I eliminated the use of caffeine, and now I've reintroduced it just a little bit in me choosing how it participates in my life, which I like being in control of my relationship with any substance that stimulates me in my mind. And add to that that I really wanted to find something that allowed my brain to perform at its best possible level. I'm in conversations all the time. I'm recording videos. I'm doing podcasts. And so I need to be at the highest performance I can possibly be. So I've been exploring things like nootropics and adaptogens. I absolutely love this company, Cured Nutrition. I love its origin story. It's fully aligned with my values and the integrity to which I want to live by. The product that I love is called Rise, and it's a nootropic that's formulated by their in-house clinical herbalist. And it contains a blend of lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms, rhodiola, ginseng, and a broad-spectrum CBD. I love this product. It has allowed me to have greater mental clarity and performance. There's no caffeine in it. So in that time of that midday coffee, I don't have to take it. You get no jitters, you get no crash, and you're getting those functional mushrooms, the adaptogens, and the cannabinoids. And it leaves your brain on fire and your to-do list just gets crushed. So this company, as I mentioned, I love, and they are extending an exclusive offer to you, my listeners. You can go grab Rise and any of their other products for 20% off. Just go to www.curednutrition.com slash create the love and use the code create the love at checkout. Once again, that's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash create the love and use the code create the love at checkout to save 20%. Remember that product is called Rise and it is incredible. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. That was the sound of the NutriSense biosensor that I've been wearing because as you know, I've been diving deep into how my body works. I've been doing what I would like to call Operation Reverse Dad Bod to step out of the narrative that fathers become less fit when they become fathers and I wanted to use this special moment of being a father to get into the best shape of my life. And this is part of that journey. So it's this small device that you put on the back of your arm that provides real-time feedback on how your body responds to the foods that you're eating, your exercise, stress, and even your sleep. Now it's not just for diabetics, it's for anybody looking to take charge of their blood sugar and their metabolic health, which is exactly me and might be you. With NutriSense, you're not just guessing how choices may impact your blood sugar, your metabolic health. NutriSense helps you track your data. It helps you understand your glucose trends, and you get to see your macronutrient breakdown for each meal. The app gives you an overall score for each meal based on how your body responds. Now you can literally see how food and habits are affecting your metabolism. It's amazing. I love it. And what's incredible is that you don't have to figure it all out by yourself because one of my favorite parts of NutriSense was that I was matched with a personal nutritionist to get one-on-one insights. Now she helped me understand so much about blood sugar, how what I was eating was impacting it, and honestly so much more. And I have to add, she was actually incredibly funny, which made it even better. She also helped me create a personalized plan and she would check in on me regularly just to make sure that I was keeping on track. Honestly, I would recommend everyone try NutriSense. When you use it for a month, it opens your eyes in profound ways for how your food, your exercise, and everything you're doing is affecting you. You can get all of this today. NutriSense has a special offer for our listeners. Go to NutriSense.com slash MarkRoves and use the code MarkRoves to save $50 off your first month, plus get a free month of nutritionist support. Be sure to tell them that you learned about NutriSense on the MarkRoves podcast 
So go visit Nutrisense.com slash Mark Groves and use code Mark Groves to start decoding your body's messages and pave the way for a healthier life. When you look at how men are seduced versus how women are seduced, is there quite a difference? Well, I talk about that in The Art of Seduction. So I say, you know, we're generalizing here. So these things are fluid. There are men who, are, who have a very feminine streak with a masculine streak. So we're generalizing. But within that general framework, men's weakness, what attracts them are appearances, are looks, what they can see, right? Visibly, right? That is their weakness. And if a woman creates a kind of theatrical or attractive presence, something a little bit larger than life, it will grab our attention. Women are very susceptible to words, and to language for various reasons. They like the sound of words. They like chatter. They like talking and communicating. And so if you have language that's, that's a little bit poetic and you can say things in a very beautiful way and you can express yourself, that can be very powerful seductively. And then for men, a woman's voice is very important, right? It's a very seductive uh, effect. And there are th other things for women as well. But yeah, men and women have certain weaknesses, but this crosses boundaries. There are men who have a weakness for language, and there are women who are very much oriented towards visuals. But in general, I would say those are the two areas that if you are interested in seduction, you can kind of be careful with, be careful with your language and try and craft it a certain way et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Is there a certain thing that, I mean, again, yeah, acknowledging generalizations, is there a certain thing that men and women can do individually that completely, I know you said insecurity, but is there a specific thing each gender can do that like just throws seduction right out the window? It's like, you're your own cock block kind of thing. Well, I have a chapter in the art of seduction that covers that I call it the anti-seducer. So in the first part of the art of seduction, I have the nine types of seducers, you know, the rake, the siren, the ideal lover, the, the charismatic, et cetera, et cetera. And I say, you have probably have one of these qualities. You, Mark, have one of these qualities in you. Reading this particular chapter will help you make it more conscious and, and more effective. The 10th type is the anti-seducer. It is a person, <laughs> male or female, who has qualities that repel people. A seducer draws you in. A seducer doesn't force themselves on you. They draw you into their world, right? Slowly but surely, okay? The anti-seducer pushes you away. So I have all of those traits in there. I can't remember all of them because I'm an old guy and I've been through a lot now. <laughs> Some of them was, I said, insecurity. Another one is a lack of generosity. So, mm. you know, this would be something that more men are guilty of. But I know nowadays women are supposed to be paying, it's supposed to be equal. But the fact that you're not generous with your money, with your time, with your spirit, you know, you try, you're holding back, you've got kind of, there's a tightness to you, is very anti-seductive. Awkwardness, which is a kind of an insecurity, I call that the bumbler, is very, very anti-seductive. I could say vulgarity can be very anti-seductive. That depends on the person. A lot of, some people that might excite, but in general, I think vulgarity and kind of being a little too coarse and harsh and then the other one that I would point out is moralizing. Realm of seduction is to be free of morals, right? It's not about right or wrong. It's about seducing. 
right? So the famous expression is all's fair in love and war, you know, and I'm writing about this now in my new book, but the goddess Aphrodite, the ancient Greek goddess of love, she was incredibly amoral. And she was like teaching women or men, if you're going to seduce you, doesn't matter what you do, you can be as deceitful as possible. Well, people who are moralizing, who are judging, who are saying, that's bad. You shouldn't have said that. What's wrong with you? You shouldn't have supported that particular political idea because you're evil. That's an evil idea. Moralizing, being judgmental, is a very anti-seductive trait. The opposite, non-judgmental, indulgent about other people, tolerant, is a very seductive quality. That seems to be more rare today. Like, is it just me or do has the internet amplified this moralization or this like way that we respond? Because I'm curious how you see things like the rise of the internet influencing seduction and you mentioned Tinder. But yeah, like how do you see that impacting it? Well, it's really interesting because I do a lot of uh, videos. We're posting a lot on YouTube now and Instagram. I've got somebody helping me with that. And I noticed that the most engagement that we have, the videos that are the most popular, all have to deal with seduction, right? Hmm. Particularly among men, but there are also a lot of women who are very interested in it. And my thinking, and I could be wrong, is that it's because we're so bad at it. The culture is so (laughs) anti-seductive, so much the opposite direction, that people really, really need to learn. So the kind of things that... I'm saying kind of strike them as I don't hear that kind of talk in other areas, right? So I think that there's a real need for it right now for various reasons. Because we've all become, to be a great seducer, you have to be good with people, right? It's a skill, knowing how to be comfortable with people, how to really listen to them, how to kind of reflect their ideas to mirror them in some way. These are high level social skills. When you spend 95% of your time here, on your phone, on your computer, you're losing those skills. They're being degraded. You're not interacting with people. You're not using your mirror neurons and looking at people in the eye and getting a sense of their body language, et cetera. Your social skills are degrading because of that. And so that makes it very difficult. It makes you tense and nervous and anxious when you first meet somebody. That's why you rely on Tinder, et cetera, et cetera. You know, to go to a bar or a restaurant or wherever go up to someone and try and talk to them it takes a lot of courage, takes some, you know, whatever you want to call it. I'm not going to use the word, but it, you know, you know what I mean, right? You have to go up there and you're putting yourself out on the line. Well, there's a lot of fear there of, of rejection. So it's better to just swipe on the phone. But as you do that, you're losing all of your people skills, all of your social skills. These are very dangerous things. Make people really, really bad at seduction, right? The other thing is, as you mentioned, It's this kind of venue where people can just shout at each other and all this kind of polarization and judgment. And, you know, I'm morally superior to you because I support this cause and you don't support that cause. You don't understand. This is what it means to be. This is what is right. And this is what is wrong. And people are so full of themselves. They're so certain. They're so full of conviction. Right. And I find that a very dangerous thing because I think of myself as a reasonably smart person who's learned a lot. And the more I learn, the more I'm less certain that I know anything. (laughs) I'm more aware of my ignorance. So people who are very certain actually have some deep psychological problems, in my opinion. So because of all of these forces moving against us, 
the fact that we're so virtual, the fact that people are so judgmental, the fact that we're not spending time with others means that if you're not careful, this tide will overwhelm you and you'll be really bad at dealing with people. You won't have the social skills doing some of the things that are going to make that person lower their resistance. And so these are very dangerous times. And that's why I think that particular book and those particular videos are so popular right now because people are actually becoming worse and worse and worse at this art. It really tells me that if someone can learn these arts, they can significantly change the impact they're having in terms of the relationships they create, the relationships they maintain. You know, I think of what you were saying about if your head's down here, you know, I know developmentally for children, if their heads are down or the parents' heads are down and they're not engaged, they're not learning things like empathy. They're not, if a kid's looking up, they're watching their parents interact, then they're learning behavior. And I fear for like the last 15 years or whatever, since the advent of social media and smartphones that where they've really become mainstream, it's like there is less up here. And so there's less, I mean, I guess it would point to possibly less empathy, more narcissism, more all the things. And then that just all gets fed by social media. Very much so. But it's not something that's just for seducing a man or a woman. It's also in your job, in your career, in your office, or just generally mingling with people, your family, et cetera, et cetera. These are skills that are going to serve you well. If you're trying, let's say you're, you're an artist and you're making a film and you want to sell your idea, selling an idea is, is sales, pure salesmanship. And if you're just wrapped up in yourself, if you're insecure, if you're just thinking about your own ideas, if you have no people skills, you could have the most brilliant idea in the world, but it won't get anywhere. So knowing the art of seduction is actually a critical skill in this world beyond just the sexual seductions. It's extremely, extremely important. And so, you know, it's very dangerous if the times that we live in, because if you're not careful, you will fall down that rabbit hole and become very narcissistic. I understand. But the main thing you have to do is you have to fight against this and you have to develop people skills. And the way you develop people skills is by socializing. It's that simple, is by being around people. Instead of being on the internet, Go out to places where you can meet people, where you can mingle, where you can see them. You go to cafes, you go to restaurants, you go to bars, you go wherever, and you start talking and you get over your fears and you build some confidence. It's like an athlete training. That's a muscle that you have that is atrophying, right? Just like if you don't train or whatever, you're training that muscle just by socializing and being around people. It seems very simple, but actually it's a very, very powerful skill that you can develop. That we're craving too, like more community, more connection, more eye contact. You have a quote, I think it's from Mastery. Yeah, it is. The future belongs to those who learn more skills and combine them in creative ways. And the process of learning skills, no matter how virtual, remains the same. In the future, the great division will be between those who have trained themselves to handle these complexities and those who are overwhelmed by them those who can acquire skills and discipline their minds, and those who are irrevocably distracted by all the media around them and can never focus enough to learn. Oh, I was like, yeah, that's everything. That is exactly like if, if we're not taking the conscious steps to build, you know, from the beginning of your work to today, when you wrote Mastery, what was the intention? Like clearly you're speaking to a specific circumstance or to, a, I guess, the circumstances of the world at the time. But yeah, what was your intention with that book? It's been my experience since a child that to be good at anything 
requires some effort. And so I know when I admire a filmmaker or a book, a writer or a musician, I can sense the years of experience. Sometimes people who are very young can create something interesting because they have a lot of spirit, but generally they also have genuine skill. And you can feel it in the product. You can feel the, the years that they spent working on something, or you look at any kind of athlete. So I know the value of discipline, of hour upon hour upon hour that you put into something and what happens to the brain, okay? And this is what makes a human being a human being. It's what makes us such a powerful species, that we can develop skills in anything. And even people who have neurological disorders, people with autism, etc., they can develop these skills. Anybody can. It's because it's built into the human brain. And so when I wrote Mastery, I was a little bit concerned that people are losing a sense of this. Now, I know I'm giving the impression in this interview that I'm this crabby old guy who's just whining and whining and whining about all the bad things about people. And I hope I don't give that impression because, number one, there are some young people out there who far surpass what older people can do, and they're more open. And youth is a wonderful thing, and I'm more on your side than you believe. But on the other hand, you're facing things, if you are young, that are much more difficult than I had to face. It's like you enter life, I enter life, and I'm swimming with the tide, and all these great things are happening for me. You enter life, and you're swimming against a tide, and you have to work against all of these bad influences. So when you have that phone in your hand, that with one press of a thumb, all these incredible things happen. Any question you want, Siri can answer, Google can answer, ChatGPT can answer, whatever, etc. You develop this mindset that everything in life should be easy and simple and quick and clickable, right? And that, that's what power is. Power is easy, it's quick, it's fast, it's at your fingertips. And so it gets under your skin, that idea, when you're young. And when you get older, you don't know how to make things. You don't know how to build things. You devalue the idea of discipline. You don't have patience. So to master anything, to be good at anything, you have to be patient. You have to be willing to put up with boredom, with tedious tasks day in and day out. And if everything is quick, quick, quick and easy, you lose that skill. So I was worried that we're raising a generation of people who don't, won't know how to design buildings, that bridges will be falling down, that buildings will be collapsing, that planes will be crashing. Of course, that's, I'm exaggerating, but that people won't know how to literally build something, right? And I noticed in a lot of books, I compare a book to a cathedral, at least from the kind of books I try to write. It's like a cathedral it has to have a good foundation. The higher you build it and the craftsmanship you put in it, it shows off in the end product. It's something you can idolize or worship, if you will. It's just a beautiful thing, but it's slow. It's brick by brick by brick by brick by brick. And I notice a lot of books just kind of crumble. They don't have that kind of discipline. They don't show a lot of thinking, a lot of effort. So I wrote Mastery because I've been around a lot of powerful people since I wrote The 48 Laws of Power and even before. And I notice this is the kind of the quiet side that nobody talks about, but that they are very disciplined. They put in all of this time. It's not sexy. You never see it. That's what makes them powerful. I want to share that secret with people. So I did a book with 50 Cent, right? Who's, you know, 
a very charismatic rapper, a very good songwriter, etc. And I saw firsthand because I spent six months with him, literally at his side, day in and day out. He's incredibly disciplined. He works really, really hard at the craft of music, of his writing his lyrics, of his business. He works out. He doesn't party. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He's a very serious, disciplined person. Nobody knows about that. Nobody sees that side of it. And so I was worried that people are getting the wrong impression that to be famous, to be a celebrity is all that matters, to get a lot of attention, to get a lot of followers on Instagram is the source of power. No, your source of power is your work, is your craft, is developing skills. And the good side about the times that we live in is that there are all these avenues for learning skills out there on YouTube, etc. all these apps that can teach you things that weren't available 40, 50 years. That's the paradox of the times we live in. You have at your control here immense tools for developing these kinds of skills that you can now utilize, but people aren't using them correctly. So that's, that's sort of the spirit why I wrote the book, Mastery. Do you think that, that the intention of writing the book and what people will get from it, I mean, I get the motivation, of course, because what you're witnessing is this sort of like quick video, quick thing, quick learn, da, 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 da. We seem to be, I guess, coinciding with how people parented in the 90s, et cetera, like this helicopter parenting, prevent kids from experiencing any sort of pain or suffering. Where do we get to a point, though, where we live in such a convenient world, in such a world where we don't want to hear ideas that don't agree with ours? We haven't built these social skills that we're talking about because we're so in our phones. Like, do we get to a point? Because you're talking about this momentum that is facing kids today. I totally agree. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and it was very different. I mean, we are some of the last generations now that know life before technology. And how cool was it that your parents said, be home at five and you went out on your bike and there was no way, you know, to be engaged with you were, you were anonymous, you know, you were having adventures with your friends. But I think now like kids can't make mistakes because everything's freaking documented. But how are we still going to achieve mastery if we're so afraid of challenges and suffering? Like the depths of our conversations are, we, we can't hold difference very often, especially not on social media. Yeah, and there's a lot of very good documentation of this kind of fragility that we have. And Talib wrote a very great book called The Anti-Fragile that I think is very important, very interesting book. So I say that the number one most important quality when I'm trying to hire someone is the ability to take criticism, the ability to say, for me to tell them, you didn't do a very good job here. This, it actually sucked. You weren't listening to what I said. I still want you to work for me but you've got to improve, you've got to raise your game. Do they kind of wilt and get all soft inside and go start whining and take it personally? Or do they go, no, I want to get better. He's helping me. He's doing me a favor. It's actually a form of love. Tell somebody that they're doing something wrong. You're trying to help them. So the future of this world is between people who have that inner toughness, despite all the helicopter parenting, despite all the social media, who can put up with some crap. And it's almost genetic. They were almost born that way, I'm afraid to say. And the vast majority of people who are too soft, who can't take anything, who the slightest bit of criticism makes them wilt. It's very hard to go from that position of weakness once you're in your 20s and develop a kind of inner toughness. Some people can, but what happens is if you're really ambitious, 
if you truly want to succeed in life, if you truly have dreams and things you want to realize, and that's the most important thing, you will find your way to mastery. You will find your way to my book. You will find your way to being disciplined, putting the phone down and working hard because it matters to you that you succeed and you know that this culture is making you a failure. It'll lead you to that point. It's just so much harder right now. And so I feel bad for a lot of people. I remember it was weird because in Mastery, one of the people I interviewed is a man named Paul Graham, who's a very powerful entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur, who created the first online pay system. And he created Y Combinator worth billions of dollars, right? Brilliant man. And I was interviewing him. He doesn't have, he didn't have a smartphone, right? You know, this incredibly tech savvy guy. He just didn't want to bother with it. He didn't want to be distracted by it. He didn't want to have all that crap in his head because he understood that his success depended on being disciplined. And the guy who put all this stuff on us, Steve Jobs, he was somebody who didn't waste time on the internet, on this computer. He would be in his room. He would close the door. He would meditate. He would think very deeply about things. If you want to succeed, if it really matters to you, not whining and not complaining and not dreaming, if you really want it, then you will put the phone down. You will get rid of the distractions. You will close your door. You will find your way to it. But if you're just bullshitting, if you're just playing like you want to succeed, you want to have power, then you'll never find your way to it. That is a powerful sentiment in and of itself. And I think about not having a smartphone. I tapped into a little bit of envy when you told me <laughs> you didn't have one. <laughs> There is part of me that now having being able to experience the contrast and the impact on mental health of having all these access points to all these things, but also we were not designed to have the feedback of thousands and thousands and millions of people immediately, you know, and you have to develop a sort of, which, you know, part of influence too, but you have to develop a sort of skin where you're not taking other people's thoughts about you and making them more important than the, your own thoughts about yourself, that you're embodying your values, that you're living you know, in a way that is in integrity with how you want to. But when you say that about smartphones, I'm kind of like, shit, is that the actual path to <laughs> liberation and, and enlightenment or, you know, whatever we might be journeying towards, like mastery? Because like when you get that little report of your screen time, I'm sure for a lot of people, that's another job. Yeah, I mean, um, the thing is, we're technologically insanely sophisticated, but we're emotionally very immature so, <laughs> so true. Our brains are still back in the Pleistocene era. They're still back in the era when we were first developing ourselves and becoming Homo sapiens, right? That's where our brains were wired. And here we are, thrust when we're born into this world that's so sophisticated with all these gadgets that are so powerful, but we're not ready for them. We don't have the discipline. We don't know how to organize our lives. So human nature takes over everything, which is the subject of, of my last book. So when the internet first developed, you're, slight, you're an older person. You can remember the early 2000s, the late 90s. It was kind of exciting. It was a tool that allowed you to connect to people. It opened up ideas to you, books that you hadn't heard of, etc. There was something interesting about it. It could have been something very positive and powerful. But then the dark side of human nature kind of took it over and corrupted it. And the dark side of human nature is what was developed hundreds of thousands of years ago, parts of our character that we can't control, such as our propensity towards feeling envy and comparing ourselves to other people. 
which is a very deep problem that a lot of hunter-gatherer cultures faced well before the advent of civilizations and settlements, etc. They understood the dangers of envy if one person in their tribe got a great gift and didn't share it with others. All kinds of battles and rivalries would take place. So they learned you can't accept a gift. You have to share it. As soon as you're given a gift, you share it with other people. Here we are in the 21st century with social media where you can see your friend or people you don't even know all their vacations in Tahiti, all their flying on private jets, all the great things they're doing. Of course, they never talk about all their boredom or TV. <laughs> they only have all their right. sexy photos, etc. They're doing all these great things, right? Envy, envy, envy. I don't have the same as they do. I want to have the same things. And if I want to have the same things, how do I get them? Well, I can't develop skills because that'll take too long. I just got to find a way to grab them, get things, get things easier, get attention, get people to follow me. You know, and so a lot of people on the internet turn into these clowns that the only thing they're good at is getting attention, which is what a clown does. That is the definition of a clown. They know how to get attention and make you laugh. That's what a lot of people on the internet are like, right? So maybe I'm partially guilty of that. I hope not. But so this is who we are. We have a primitive side to our nature. And we're not ready to handle all of this power. Will we develop this internal skills in the next 20, 30 years? If we don't, we're going to destroy ourselves, quite frankly. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like, you know, humans are one of the only, they are the only species that will actually, their ego and their shadow will lead to the destruction of their own species, you know? And I'm curious, like, what are you working on now and what has been called through you? I know you said you're working on a new book, so I'm really curious, like, where to next? Or can you share? Yeah, I can share. It's a departure for me. I've talked about it in other interviews. So it's not like my other books. I try to mix things up so I don't kind of fall into these cliches and just repeat the same things over and over again. I've been meaning to write a book for probably... 15, 16 years on something I call the sublime. And if you read my book by 50 Cent, that's the last chapter in the 50th law is about facing death. And I call that the sublime. And then in my last chapter in the laws of human nature, I have a chapter on confronting your mortality. And that is also about the sublime. So I've been thinking about it. And then, as you may or may not know, about five years ago, I came very close to dying myself. I had a stroke. If I had my wife hadn't been with me in the car, I would be dead right now. I came very close to the end. And so, you know, I felt this is the time to write that book. And the sublime to me is a very simple concept that I can explain with kind of an image. And the image is of a circle. And the circle is everything inside that circle is what humans are supposed to think, what we're, how we're supposed to behave, what is acceptable in our culture. Now, that circle in ancient Greece or ancient Egypt was different than our circle, what was acceptable, but it was still a circle. These are still conventions. These are still the kinds of things that are acceptable. And the sublime is everything that lies outside that circle, beyond the circle. What isn't acceptable, what isn't conventional, what thoughts we're not supposed to think, experiences we're not supposed to have, behavior that's not maybe frowned upon, Things that aren't normal, that are strange and, and that are marvelous, awesome in some ways. And so my book, I'm picking like 12 little points outside that circle that kind of give you that sublimity. Thoughts about the cosmos and how strange it is 
that we live in this universe that, that is there. It's just, and then the evolution of life. You know, I try to explain people that the fact that you and I are here talking on this medium in the year 2023 is just sheer insanity. How can it come about? If you understand evolution, you study the history of how life evolved on planet Earth, you'll understand there were all these, what they call bottlenecks in evolution. If this certain thing had evolved in a certain way, everything would have gone differently, right? And so there are all kinds of examples where species died out because of a volcano, because of a meteor, etc. And if it hadn't happened, everything would have been different. If a meteor hadn't struck Earth, 60 million years ago in Mexico, dinosaurs would have not been extinct, probably. We don't know for sure, but probably. They'd still be roaming around. You and I wouldn't be here. Humans almost went extinct 80,000 years ago. We only, there were only about 10,000 humans on the planet, and we nearly were wiped out by a virus. So the fact that you and I are here talking, the odds of it are astronomical. And yet nobody thinks about this. Nobody talks about it. And I say in, in my chapter, we should be building shrines and temples and buildings just dedicated to that one idea to make you understand how insane it is to be alive right now, right? And to be grateful for it. And so on and on, I explore these points. I explore our, our childhood. I explore ancient religions. I'm writing a chapter right now about love and the nature of love. I wrote a chapter about animals, about, how the, about consciousness and the brain, about time and history. And obviously, the last chapter will be about death itself. But the idea is the world is as big as your thoughts are, right? It expands with your mind. And if you're inside your phone and all you're thinking about is what your friend had for breakfast, about that hot outfit that they're wearing, et cetera, your mind is getting... <laughs> if you're thinking about you know, these grander subjects, looking outside and being amazed that we here on this planet have blue sky. Do you know the odds against the earth being what it is are just insane? You know, that there are animals that evolved and that they're just all these like mysteries, these secrets, et cetera. Your mind expands. It holds, you know, it has a vastness to it and it's a great feeling. So it's a book without using drugs to try and help expand your mind. I mean, I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's- I want to be finished. Yeah, yeah. Can't wait to be done. The confrontation with mortality, I think, is one we're a very death phobic culture. And I don't think we recognize the sense of liberation that can come from examining the endpoint that is inevitable for all of us. And, you know, for me, I've been close to death before as well. And it made everything like I, I broke my leg playing soccer and then I got an embolism in my lung. Oh my God. And yeah, and I remember sitting on the table in the hallway or sitting on a gurney or whatever they're called in the hallway at like 2 a.m. going to get a CT scan. And the doctor said to me, oh, well, this is, you have a fat embolism in your lung. It's about 40% fatal. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, you know, in a, in a moment, you're just thinking like, I was 26 at the time, 27. And I remember thinking like, I'm not ready. Like I haven't done really anything. And in that moment, I actually ended up quitting tobacco. Like that moment, it was like, I was chewing tobacco at the time, very from the Texas of Canada. So, you know. Oh yeah, Calgary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but it made everything that mattered come very obvious. And 
and yet I forget. I forget about mortality. It's convenient. I can get lost in my phone and forget about it. But I always remember the gift of the immediacy of the recognition of not and none of us have it tomorrow, you know, and that nothing's promised. I was going to ask you about how it's informed your work, and clearly it's informed it through the book you're writing. What about for just the people listening, like from your experience and what you've been through and what you've written and all the things you've achieved too, what is it that you think matters most in terms of living a good life, you know, living a fulfilling life and having good connections? Well, it's kind of a combination of things. First of all, everybody is different. Everybody has their own kind of psychological makeup and has their own hierarchy of needs, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want to like impose my set of values. But if you're asking about me and if I could give people a lesson about what I think really matters, I think there are a couple of things. So one of them is being very fulfilled in your work and in your career. And I know that a lot of people think that that's nonsense, that real fulfillment comes in your relationships and your family with your children, et cetera, et cetera. I don't debunk that. I don't deny that. But I think we are creatures that are made to make things, to build things, to create things. That is who we are. That is what makes us powerful. And when you're a child, you have dreams. You want to leave you know, a stamp on the world. You just don't want to die and, and everybody forgets about you. You have these kind of large romantic dreams, et cetera, et cetera. And then as you get older, they kind of whittle themselves down and maybe you even forget about them. So connecting to that sense of I'm here on this planet for a reason. It's not just random. My brain is wired a very particular way. My experiences, my parents, my early childhood, my siblings, they've all gone towards creating a unique individual. I have something to contribute to this world. There is a purpose behind the fact that I'm born. And that purpose is I'm unique. I'm different from everybody else. And I'm going to make something that matters, that gives me a sense of fulfillment. And so if you're like, 50, 60 years old, and you haven't been able to do that, but you had those dreams. It's like you're kind of split. You wanted that, but you never really got that far. And then suddenly you have the realization, it's too late. I'm too old. I can't do it. I think that's a terrible, terrible feeling. And I know there are people who have it, and I empathize with them. I don't want you out there to have that feeling, right? And it can be raising a good family. That could be being a great parent. I don't care. But it's something that matters to you that's very important. It's an achievement. That's something you want to create and you were born to create. And so having that sense of connection to what makes you different from other people is to me an extremely, extremely important life skill, right? So it gives you a sense of when all things are chaotic and weird and you're distracted, et cetera, or things are come your way, you know, no, I don't need this in my life. No, I want this. I want that because I have this purpose. I have this goal. I was put on the planet for this particular reason. And to me, that's the single most important thing you can have. The second most important thing, but it's very much related to the first, it's all part of the same wisdom, is knowing who you are as being self-aware. That is the point of the, of the laws of human nature. The ability to look at yourself with some honesty and some de- detachment and to say, this is a problem. This is what I need to work on. This is what I'm not good at. I want to improve it. I want to change it. This is what I am good at. This is what I was meant to accomplish. The ability to look inside yourself 
and judge yourself and be aware of what makes you do certain things is very powerful and very calming. And it's hard for me to express that to people because I know it myself, but it's a feeling. And how do you express that feeling? The only way I can say it is I meditate every morning. And in my meditation, it's all about being extremely aware of your brain, of your thought processes, every little tick of movement inside your brain. You're thinking about it. You're aware of your mind and you're aware. And what happens is you see into yourself, you see your ego, you see yourself, you see the same habits of thinking, the same anxieties over and over and over again. You go, wow, I've got all these things going on in my head, but I never think about them. Why am I so anxious? Why am I worrying here I'm in this peaceful room, it's beautiful, it's calm, I have incense, etc. Why am I thinking about this person who bugged me a week ago? Why am I looking forward to something two weeks from now? Why, why, why? It calms me down. I go, I don't need to do that. I can just let it pass. So going into yourself and being aware and exploring your own emotions and understanding that who you are and why you have these patterns of thinking is very empowering and very liberating. I could spend five hours explaining that process and, and the beauty of it, but I don't want to bore people half to death. And they're connected because when you look at yourself and you know why you were put on this planet, what makes you different, what you were meant to accomplish. So the two go hand in hand. Yeah, it's interesting because to think like if you go to journey into meditation and witness yourself, but then you're witnessing that you haven't done these things that you're being called towards, you know, then comes the responsibility of awareness. Yeah, and it's painful. And the problem, yeah. Mark, is we are drawn to things that are easy and pleasurable, the path of least resistance. And pain, I don't want that in my life. I don't want to hurt myself. I want to have thoughts about my inadequacies, etc. I understand that's human nature. I'm like that. Everyone's like that. But if you're able at all to push against that and to say sometimes pain is a good thing, Sometimes pain teaches you that sometimes adversity, resistance, bad things are the best thing that can happen to you. Now, having a stroke is not a good thing. I can guarantee you it is a nightmare in some ways, but it taught me a lot. It has developed me in certain ways. It has made me a much different, and in some ways, I don't want to say better, but a more rounded person. I've, I've worked on some of my own weaknesses that existed before the stroke. But if you can say that Everything bad in this world is okay. It has a purpose. It has a reason. It's teaching me something. This is extremely, extremely important, you know? So it's painful to have to confront your inadequacies. But look at it this way. You want it. Everybody likes, wants to change in something. There's about something about you that you don't like. There's something about your life that you don't like and your circumstances, etc. You want change. It's why you read books like my books or, or you listen to other people's podcasts, right? But how can you possibly change anything in yourself, any quality, if you don't know where it comes from, if you don't understand it, if you don't look at yourself, if you're always blaming the world or your mother and your father or your girlfriend, your husband, etc., 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 then you can't change because you can't change your mother and your father. You can't change where you were born. You can't change what university you went to. But you can look at yourself and see that these, it comes from me that I'm responsible for these things. I'm responsible for my insecurities. I'm responsible for the lack of discipline in my life, not my parents, me. Then you look at where it comes from. Perhaps your parents played a role 
But you can, now if you understand that role that they played, you can work against it. But if you never examine yourself, you can't change. And to examine yourself means pain. But pain is a good thing, I'm here to say, is, is the point here. Failure and pain are the best forms of education that you can have. So beautiful. Robert, I want to be mindful of your time. I've gone over and I'm so appreciative. Like I've been nerding out waiting for this interview and your work has been so informing to my life and the way that I've shown up and as your work has evolved too, you know, just being able to apply these things from an intentional place with integrity has, it's really contributed so much to where I am today. And I really appreciate you and that you've really committed yourself to this craft and this art. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you. And for people listening, where can they find more of you? I know your books are everywhere, so that won't be hard to find. But yeah, where can they find more of you? Well, I have a very ancient website. It's powerseductionandwar.com, but we've updated it a little bit. And there you'll find ancient blogs from the early 2000s. You'll find links to all my books on Amazon. I have seven books out there. You'll find links to YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. I'm very busy and I can't really type right now. So it's very hard for me to respond, but I do read all of your emails. I do read them all. I don't often respond though. So please be indulgent, but that's the best place to reach me. Robert, thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful. 